Hello and welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus on Radio Fodder. I'm Katrina, and with me is Kai, as always. Hi, Kai. Hey, Katrina, how are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. We've also got our guest, Dr. Jared McKenna, here with us today. How are you going? Very well. How are you both? Nice to be here. Yeah, it's yeah, good, pleasure good, to have good. you here. <laughs> so, Jared is a reproductive biologist. So, today we're talking all about reproduction or sex. <laughs> but before we get into that, let's talk about some science news. Kai, what news have you got for us? So, I want to talk about Martian sunsets. And that's because NASA's Curiosity rover has been taking images of clouds on Mars, specifically at sunset. And Pretty. the reason this is kind of newsworthy is they've found, like they've recently received an image back from the Curiosity rover of like sun rays at sunset. And this is like, think if you picture it, it's your stereotypical sunset, like glorious rays of sunshine shining through the clouds. And they've seen this on Mars and oh. it's, it's pretty cool. Like the photo is not the most artistic sunset photo you'll ever see, but the fact that it's on Mars and, you know... That's pretty special. That's pretty special. <laughs> Unfiltered, but we'll accept it. Yeah, hashtag no filter, let's go. Um, but, like, okay, why are they bothering to look at Martian clouds other than getting some cool sunset snaps? The reason is because they want to get an idea of the atmosphere, and clouds have been a way that, like, meteorologists on Earth have studied the atmosphere because they're great for understanding, well, the weather, but also just the wind and the atmosphere's, like, sort of structure as well. And some things that they've learned about clouds on Mars, firstly, most clouds on Mars are made of water, which is pretty interesting. They've been searching for water on Mars for a long time. And also that they're sort of in, like, lower than about 60 kilometres, which is actually pretty high when you think about the Earth's atmosphere. Most clouds are like sort of in the, the 10 to 15 kilometres above the surface. So this mm -hmm. is it's quite high, these clouds. But they've also recently observed even higher clouds than that. And they know that the air is much, much colder up there so that these clouds are possibly made of dry ice. Ooh. That's cool. So frozen carbon dioxide in the upper atmosphere making Martian clouds. So that's pretty cool. Uh, something else that's really interesting is they've observed colourful clouds. So it's kind of like a rainbow. You get this effect. It's called iridescence. So different colours when you look at it on different angles. And this is because the particles making up the clouds, whether that's water or dry ice, have very similar particle size in the cloud. And the way that this interacts with light is you get this preferential like refraction or diffraction of light and you get these nice pretty colours. And this is also really great for the scientists studying Martian weather because as the colours change, it gives you an idea of how the particle sizes change in the cloud. So you can get a lot of information about what's going on in the upper atmosphere of Mars and you can understand the weather and how it's evolving with time just by looking at these pretty pictures of rainbow-coloured clouds. So wow, what a job. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds so beautiful. Yeah, very cool. Jared, do you have some news for us? I do have some news. So I'm going to talk about something that a lot of people probably haven't heard of before. It's one of the most common disorders that you've never heard of, is what <laughs> I'm going to say. So I'll, I'll, I'll drop some hints and see if anybody can get it. But um, it takes around 10 years, roughly, for a, for a diagnosis. 
And okay. uh, this is after time. seeing roughly eight to ten on average uh, different physicians as oh well to gosh. get that diagnosis. Oh. Um, we've got no idea what causes it. We don't know the cure and we don't have uh, any reliable treatments, I should say. There are some treatments out there, but they're not the best. Yeah. Um, and it's as common as asthma and diabetes. Oh, I didn't realise it was that common. So I think Katriana wow. might already know it. Yeah, well, I mean. Yeah. So <laughs> I am t- I'm, I ta- <laughs> I'm talking about endometriosis. So it is affecting about one in nine people with a uterus all around the world. So it is that prevalent. And wow. it's that, um, yeah, that, that common, but. People don't often sort of know about it. A lot of people don't know about it very much. Do you think it's becoming more common now that like there are celebrities who've opened up and said that they've had it or have it? Absolutely. We need we need spokespeople for things like this. You know, they've got the platform, they've got <laughs> the voice, and mm. if they can bring it to the to the the public's eye and to the public's ear, then we're going to hear about it a lot more, and that's going to do wonders for finding things like treatments and cures. So um, it's actually Endometriosis Awareness Month um, March right now. So oh. that's the, which is why I thought I would talk about it. I think it's definitely newsworthy. It's something we should definitely talk about more. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's a chronic condition that affects one in nine people with a uterus all around the world. And essentially what it is, is um, tissue from the inner lining of your uterus, very similar to that tissue, grows outside of the uterus. So, and it can grow on essentially anything nearby. So Mm. that could be your ovaries, your bladder, your bowel, your kidneys, your diaphragm. Um, And none of that is any good. No, (laughs) I wouldn't think so. (laughs) No. So it's very painful and it can have a whole bunch of other effects. So you can have, you know, irregular um, irregular periods, heavy periods, painful periods, um, pain during sex, incontinence, diarrhea, infertility, lower back, abdominal, um, pelvic pain. So, you know, this is just some of the symptoms that I've listed here. So the list definitely goes on. You can sort of get a picture on how... Doesn't sound very pleasant. It's not very pleasant. (laughs) And this is affecting, you know, uh, one in nine people with a uterus. Mm. So this is an enormous problem. Um, And in a lot of instances as well, these symptoms are absolutely paralyzing and debilitating. You know, people can't get off the couch, out of Mm. of bed, anything like that. So let alone go to work if you can't even stand up. Mm. Um, So it's definitely affecting them financially as well because they can't get to work and they can't afford to um, pay for their treatment, things like that. So... It's this terrible condition that we really know not a lot about. We can't really help a lot of people outside of doing surgery and removing those growths, those endometriotic Mm. tissues, Mm. um, to relieve that pain, those symptoms temporarily. So um, the point of this month, the Endometriosis Awareness Month, is really to raise awareness, of Mm. course, Mm -hmm. um, but to sort of get everybody's... um, uh, increase our sympathy and empathy for the people that are going through the suffering or suffering um, with endometriosis. And hopefully um, along that way, you know, we're g- going to be able to raise some funds and people like celebrities are going to come come out and say that they've also got this um, and they suffer from it. So the more we talk about it, the more we make it apparent in everyday life, you know, the better we're going to sort of treat these people and be able to um, relieve them of some of those symptoms. So, mm. anybody out there with endometriosis, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a hero, you're a survivor. <laughs> um, yeah. And anybody that do, uh, that doesn't have endometriosis or doesn't have a uterus, you know, please um, try to learn about it. You know, make it a part of your conversations and try to be a bit more empathetic and sympathetic for people that do. Mm. Well, we'll come back to endometriosis and reproductive biology, but. My news is, speaking of Mars Guy, (laughs) I'm going to tell you about a uh, Martian fairy tale. Okay. So future space missions are likely going to send robots to scout 
for Habitat for Space Explorers. It kind of makes sense. You don't send humans as the guinea pigs. So researchers at the University of Arizona in the College of Engineering had developed technology that can allow a flock of robots... (laughs) to go and explore subsurface environments on other worlds, including Mars. Is that the collective term for robots? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do we do we want to like admit whether or not they're living and whether or not we should have a collective down? <laughs> so at least it's not a murder of robots? Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, so I've spoken previously on Radio Silence about how tunnels under the surface of the moon are ideal for a moon-based camp because you've got better temperature regulation and you can shield people from harmful cosmic yes. radiation. Um, turns out, same could be said for Mars um, because it also doesn't have that sort of protection of an atmosphere like ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so lava tubes and caves would make the perfect habitat for astronauts because you don't need to build a structure. It's and already it's there. already yeah it's already there and it's already under the surface mm-hmm. so you're you're shielded all you need to do is go in make it pretty and cozy um <laughs> and so, have an atmosphere that you can breathe in. yeah yeah oh, i mean <laughs> among other things other, yeah <laughs> lots, lots of things you need but <laughs> if you remember the story of hansel and gretel the pair dropped breadcrumbs to make sure that they could find their way back and not that it really worked but <laughs> Engineers designed breadcrumbs that are actually miniaturized sensors that kind of like piggyback on the rovers and then the rovers deploy a sensor every now and then as they traverse the caves and other subsurface environments. Uh. So as soon as the signal for one becomes weak, they just drop another on the ground. And Uh. so in a nod to the fairy tale, the researchers have named it um, the breadcrumb-style dynamically deployed communication network. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, So... Essentially, what they'll do is like continuously monitor the environment and help maintain awareness of, of where the rovers are. And then it will also send wireless data to like the mother rover, which I think <laughs> is really cool. Um, but essentially, this seems to be like the better solution rather than thinking about, oh, we're just going to drop a sensor every one kilometer because that's not always going to work if, you know, yep. there are. I don't know, not corners. Corners are not the right example of an obstacle, but like if there are obstacles that prevent you from transmitting the signal. Well, yeah, if you're underground, yeah. like yeah. everything's going to... You just gonna, don't know. Yeah. I can get a, better, get a better signal from the second story of my house with the Wi-Fi, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's it's less pre-planning. It's more thinking about, okay, how can we really make these rovers autonomous? And breadcrumbs and a fairy tale seems oh, to be the there way. There you go. Creative <laughs> thinking. How amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so we'll be back on Radio Silence um, to talk about reproductive biology. And don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence and listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. But in, in line with the theme, here is Let's Talk About Sex by Salt and Pepper. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. That was Let's Talk About Sex by Salt and Pepper because today's episode is all about reproduction. We've got Jared, our resident reproductive biologist here. Jared, what are you going to tell us about today? Well, yes, definitely sticking on the reproduction theme today. I'm going to talk a little bit about, we've sort of touched on endometriosis a bit. Now I'm going to talk about um, menstrual cycles. Oh, so okay. <laughs> what they are, how we study them, and um, and why we study them the way that we do. I'm sorry, are you going to tell me a woman all about <laughs> menstrual cycles? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll just leave now. No. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start off by asking 
How many different mammalian species do you think actually have a menstrual cycle? And for, for perspective, there's 5,500 mammalian species. How many do you reckon have a menstrual cycle? Oh. My first thought would have been all of them, but now you're yeah. giving me doubts. 5,000. I don't know. <laughs> 83. Oh, my okay. God. 83 species. Wow. So it is exceptionally rare. It's yeah. about 1.5%, which is not a lot. <laughs> wow. Um, which then, of course, makes it very difficult to study. It's very <laughs> difficult to find other species that we could use outside of studying it on ourselves yeah. um, reliably, I should say, as well, because we do find ways, but they aren't <laughs> the best. You know, We yeah. want to find the perfect model, the perfect way to study something. Um, and about 77, 78 of those species are... Um, the higher order primates is what mm. we say. So they're they're the they're the great apes, like our, yeah. our cousins, gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees, um, but even smaller <coughs> um, primates as well, like baboons and and um, macaques. They all have menstrual cycles very, very, very similar to mm -hmm. humans as well. And it may surprise you that the uh, remaining species are four species of bat. Um, <laughs> yes, very unusual. That's definitely it, was, it. Surprised me when I found out for the <laughs> okay. first time. Um, <laughs> The elephant shrew, which is like a kind of mouse-like creature, yeah, um, very small. Um, but those sort of five species actually have a very different menstrual cycle to right. what humans right. do. So okay, so rule them out. Yeah, so we kind of rule them <laughs> out for a lot of reasons. Um, there are some similarities that we can use them for, but you know, studying and working with bats has its has its um, trials and tribulations, as I'm sure you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but what the uh, the remaining species is the uh, the species that I actually worked on during my PhD, and I felt just incredibly blessed to work with them because they're incredible. It's called the Egyptian spiny mouse, and <laughs> they are absolutely adorable. I encourage everybody to go have a Google look at the photos of them. They're super <laughs> cute. Um, and we only discovered this about five or six years ago. Wow! Um, and it was one of those completely serendipitous discoveries, accidentally discovered that they have a menstrual cycle. How does one accidentally discover that? Thank you for asking. <laughs> so one way that we um, use normal laboratory mice is, laboratory mice, by the way, do not have a menstrual cycle. Yep. Mm. Um, but we can sort of trick them into being pregnant for certain studies that we want to use them for. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that we, we do that is essentially we can flush their vagina with saline, with fluid. Mm. And that alone will sort of send signals to the brain to essentially trick them that they are pregnant because it wow. tricks them that they've been mated. Yeah. So uh, that's becoming pseudo-pregnant. Right. That's huh. what we say. Um, so the researcher who um, discovered that they have a menstrual cycle actually did this exact procedure with the spiny mice um, and withdrew that, that pipette and there was a little bit of blood on the end mm. of the pipette, on mm. the end of the syringe. And, of course, your first thought is that, yeah. oh, my God, I've, I've hurt this mouse, I've, I've injured them, I've made them bleed internally, all these things. But um, thankfully for her and thankfully for the mouse, um, <laughs> everything was as normal. Yeah. Um, she was checked by supervisors, by lab technicians, animal experts, all of that technique was perfect. Um, and they did a little bit more sort of investigating and you know, over multiple days and they realised that there was only blood over a certain number of days, mm. but then it returned um, mm -hmm. after a certain number of days as well. So they put two and two together yeah. and actually discovered that this mouse has a menstrual cycle and it's the first rodent to ever be discovered to have one. Wow. 
Wow. Yep. That is serendipitous because that timing, like it had to be during the bleeding time. Yep, exactly. So if it was mm. outside of that, mm. it may have ended up with that discovery as yeah. well because menstrual species actually cannot become pseudopregnant either. Uh, we don't yeah. have that same circuitry that uh, laboratory mice do, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so they may have found it out in the end as yeah. well, but there would have been a lot more time and a lot yeah. more energy yeah. <laughs> yeah. that had been expended to get that <laughs> rather than this <laughs> serendipitous discovery, I say. Um, so they are, yeah, the first r- rodent species that we know of, I should say, mm. as well. You yeah. know, there's, there may be another one out there somewhere running around in the world that may have a <laughs> menstrual cycle. We don't know, haven't found it yet. I was going to say, have we crossed all the 5,000 other species off the <laughs> list or no one's looked yet? Well, not me personally, but I'm sure they're getting through the list. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, their name being the Egyptian spiny mouse. So they are from Egypt. Yeah. Um, and it, you do sort of have to think, you know, why... Does a mouse have a menstrual cycle? Why does why does any animal have a menstrual cycle? Really, <laughs> if most of them don't, you know, why why do we? Mm. Um, and the answer uh, is unfortunately uh, we don't know. Um, <laughs> so I can't I can't firmly answer that one. Um, but there are a couple of theories um, out there, and they don't really line up very well with the spiny mouse because primarily it's to do with you've got to sort of be at the top of the food chain to mm. be able to afford to menstruate. So. Yep. Yes, right. so you can afford to essentially grow tissue um, every month or however long that mm. your menstrual cycle is and then shed that tissue and regrow it again. So it's a very taxing process physiologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you also think about it, they're also leaving kind of a bloody trail yeah. wherever they are. Mm. So gorillas don't really have to worry about an animal or a threat kind of finding them because they're a gorilla. They're 200 kilos. They've got no threats. But this itty-bitty little mouse that everything eats yeah. is now running around in the deserts of Egypt with a bloody trail. That How do you know it doesn't have like a mini pad or something? <laughs> exactly. We haven't we haven't found one yet, so there very may well be. Um, but yeah, it makes you think, you know, why, why in the world would they have developed this? Mm. Um, but there is another non-reproductive trait that they also have that may have some sort of indication on why um and that is they also have scar free wound healing so if anybody Mm. has been burnt before or been um had surgery they've got a scar um and that is scar tissue it doesn't Mm. grow back all the same cells you know hair doesn't grow there it looks a little bit different um spiny spiny mice um don't have scar tissue they will regrow every cell as normal so let's say a fox finds the spiny mouse because it's followed its bloody trail it's grabbed it in its mouth, and then essentially the spiny mouse can get rid of its skin. Oh my god! <sighs> and deshed itself and run away and get away. Kind wow. of like, kind what? of like how a gecko, you know, drops its yeah. tail, runs away. Um, the spiny mouse can get rid of its skin and regrow all of its skin. The fox has got some food. The spiny mouse has still got its life. <laughs> um, but there's this kind of wound repair. Um, similarity between its skin and its uterus so perhaps there's some connection there we still haven't you know fine-tuned why and if they really are connected but it's kind of kind of funny that they've got two Mm. of these wound repair characteristics within them so um we've done in the past six or so years we've done a lot of studies and um sort of characterizing that menstrual cycle and it is very very similar to humans the um sort of timing wise and where it where it happens so bats for example it only happens in some parts of the uterus whereas spiny mice and humans it's the entire thing gets okay. shed basically <laughs> um 
and also some of the proteins and other factors that the, the, uterus, the uterus secretes at the right times is exactly the same in spiny mice and humans. So there's a lot of similarities, and those are the same similarities that like gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans all have. So mm. instead of now going to try and study whatever sort of menstrual cycle disorder or gynecological issue in humans or gorillas, we've got this mouse. Mm. Mm. And mice are a lot cheaper. They're a lot yep. more forgiving on us. They're a lot, <laughs> they're a lot easier to use, easier to handle, mm. um, and all of these things. So we can study all of these incredibly important things, you know, potentially endometriosis mm. yeah. um, in spiny mice rather than trying to um, study them in us uh, and gorillas and chimpanzees and bats so they're an incredible species um you know we've they even have um done a study in pms um premenstrual oh. syndrome and uh yes believe it or not the spiny mice do <laughs> exhibit some of the similar <laughs> symptoms that humans do so you know correct me you know stop stop me if um this, this is unfamiliar you know um they tend to be more anxious um they are also a bit angrier which we correlate to difficulty handling. So, you know, we try to pick oh, them up okay. and they're a lot more... Oh, uh, yeah, agitated. Uh, yeah, agitated. Yeah, mm. good word. Um, they eat more. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so we've weighed their food essentially throughout their mm-hmm. cycle mm-hmm. and it's they ate a lot more right before their period and then during their period and then it dropped off again. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of a little bit more nervous. They're less, less exploratory is what we say. So they sort of tend to sit in the back of their cage and just sort of have a bad time. Is, is what is what it sort of looks like, but um, even behaviorally, they've got these characteristics that are the same as humans. So they're an incredible species. You know, please everybody look them up. Um, if, if there's any reproductive biologists listening, you know, please study them. <laughs> um, they're an, they're amazing species, and yeah, I think they're fantastic. Oh, there you go. Thanks for that. That's a, I learned a lot about menstrual cycles there, not just in humans. So <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks for mansplaining it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we'll get on to our next song. This is Special by Lizzo. Welcome back to Radio Silence. That was Special by Lizzo. And continuing on with the reproduction theme, Kai is going to tell us a story. I'm going to talk about inbreeding Ooh, and okay. this is, it's, it's, yeah, from a human perspective, this is a bit of a taboo topic. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have set it up as a story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not my story. Um, it's kind of weird that, like, it definitely feels weird to, you know, this, this, this perception that inbreeding is bad, like, you know, mm. you think of stereotypes about hillbillies and stuff being mm, inbreds yeah. and that, um, but also in a lot of places you can marry your cousin. Mm. So um, that's pretty interesting. And yeah, even in Australia, it's not incest if it's not a direct ancestor or descendant of you. Oh, okay. So all brother or sister, sorry. Yeah, so yeah. like, yeah, again, cousins are fine. I couldn't actually find whether you're allowed to marry your cousin in Victoria. I think you can in some other states. But anyway, that's <laughs> that's that's besides the point. We're, we're here to talk about reproductive biology, not like marital law. <laughs> so why is it that inbreeding is such a big problem? And the reason that is is often cited is because of recessive mm. dis- disorders. Okay. So anything that is a gene that's passed on and you need to get the gene from both your parents, it is a problem with inbreeding because if you're breeding with someone closely related to you, like your sibling, they're also highly likely to have those same recessive traits and that makes it much more likely that your offspring are going to have those genetic disorders. 
So it can cause problems in small populations where lots of inbreeding occurs because it can really exaggerate these recessive disorders. Mm -hmm. And it's another, like this goes to show why having genetic diversity is really important. And it's something that is, you know, just good for evolution generally, because it means that that in any given population, there's going to be some individuals that are going to be the fittest and they're going to survive and breed more. And that's how evolution works. Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting examples of inbreeding and how it's had problems with humans, particularly in like French Canada. I don't really know how to say this, but Quebec. Is oh, Quebec, yeah. Quebec, yeah. yeah. Like, I always think it's like Quebec, but oh. I don't think that's right. I think it's more like Quebec. Anyway, the oh, Fr Aussie, French Canada. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> French Canadians um, have had some problems with inbreeding and mm. like they have a really high overrepresentation of recessive genetic disorders because they started off as a small migrant population mm. from Europe. They moved over to Canada. They stayed isolated for a while and, of course, were only breeding with themselves. And there's sort of a few thousand individuals in the gene pool. And, you know, a few centuries later and all of a sudden everyone is like, oh, why do we have these genetic disorders <laughs> that is like much more prevalent than other areas around the world? And it is because that they've just been breeding with the same like bloodlines the whole mm. way. And it's not just humans. We see this in domestic pets as well. Um, it is actually useful in the terms of like breeding a specific breed of animal. Like if you want to get a dog and breed a trait, like, I don't know, I always think of like pugs mm. and they're supposedly bred for cuteness, but I don't personally, <laughs> I don't personally find pugs cute. They look pretty gross. And Unsuccessful. <laughs> that I had a really cute pug plushie, but you know, that's different that's to the real different thing. different to the real thing. <laughs> Yeah, and I I think it's also a problem that they're like like bred to excess. The squished up nose mm, gives them breeding yeah, problems. Yeah. Um, other examples of domestic pets: the um, Persian cat is you know it's like a, a purebred cat, but it also has, suffers from kidney disease. Like mm. it's quite common for them to suffer from kidney disease, and that's just because they've been inbred for presumably a long time, and all of these genetic disorders start to become a big problem. Um, I was reading a website, like a blog for for dog breeders mm -hmm. and like sort of amateur dog breeders. And the blog writer was saying, oh yeah, look, these are all the problems. And we've got this big long list of over 160 different genetic disorders that we know of oh, gosh. that can come about in dogs from excessive inbreeding. And yeah, the blog then talked about a few ways to like mitigate that, um, but it can definitely be a big problem. But in, interestingly, because of that, like despite all of that evidence that inbreeding is not always good, there are examples of animals defying this. And mm. you would think maybe evolution would say, okay, if inbreeding's bad, don't do it. Mm. Yeah. But it seems that most animals don't care. And they found that many animals like just do not avoid inbreeding at all. Mm. So it's interesting. So you would have thought that like, if it's so bad, animals would have evolved a way to tell their siblings apart, for example. Yeah. Um, but that's that's not always the case. And sort of one of the motivations or, like, reasonings why this might be the case is these animals still want to pass on their genes. So it's better to breed with your siblings than mm. to not breed at all, which yeah. Mm. Yeah. Is, is an interesting one. But, <laughs> I mean... If you're thinking about it, if a population was going to go extinct, then yeah, this is this is true. We'd rather that they we take yeah. the risk of genetic disorders rather than 
the population go extinct. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, that's from, like, our human perspective. But let's see, like, why else might animals not want to bother with avoiding inbreeding? And it's one of the reasons, I think, is because it actually takes energy or, it, like, to actually have enough sort of cognitive capacity to be able to identify different animals and go, oh, that's mm-hmm. my sister, better not breed with her. <laughs> um, that takes energy and it's like another evolutionary cost. Like it yeah. actually takes away from the opportunity to develop other um, traits or habits or survival skills. So yeah, don't worry about it. Don't need mm-hmm. it. It's it's not that important. <laughs> um, but interestingly, in 2021, they did a study or it was actually a review of 138 different studies of 88 different species of animals to try and find out like how often is inbreeding avoidance. So, and they found that only 17% of the animals studied actually actively avoided inbreeding. So they're, you know, seems pretty happy to, (laughs) (laughs) to, we're just dramatizing all of it. Oh yeah. It's no big deal. I mean, maybe it's, it's only a problem if it becomes really exaggerated. Mm. Like if you're in a, a limited population, like in French Canada or Royal bloodline hemophilia. That's, yeah, another good example. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of marrying cousins, plenty of, of royal, <laughs> it's like, I think if you look at like the family tree of various European mm. royal families, they're all all interconnected. Yep. Um, and I think even speaking of Egypt, I think pharaohs, yeah. like yeah. Yep. pharaohs could only marry other pharaohs and mm-hmm. to be yep. a pharaoh is like, oh, that's yeah, my sibling. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, back to animals and the fact that they, don't seem to naturally want to avoid inbreeding as much as humans might, this could have a positive effect for things like conservation efforts because currently conservationists are deliberately trying to avoid breeding endangered species with closely related individuals. Obviously, they want to maximise genetic diversity for the long-term survival of the species. But also, like I said before, it's better to have offspring rather than to not. Mm. And I think one of the examples was the giant panda mm. is apparently very difficult to breed with others in captivity. They're very selective of their mates. And if you're taking a whole of like chunk out of the possible pool of mates by saying, no, these ones are closely related, we can't let mm. them breed, then maybe the panda's too fussy and would and just won't yeah you know, won't yeah. breed with anyone. And that just would be not, really or just sick. not in the mood. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I mean, if you know anything about getting pandas in the mood, I'm sure people <laughs> would like to hear about it. Um, yeah, so sort of the outcome of this study was that conservationists maybe should be less fussy about mm. avoiding inbreeding because the animals themselves may not be. So yeah. um, That's interesting. Yeah, so for the purposes of like trying to maintain endangered species, then... Yeah, if if the animals want to go for it, then you know wh- wh- who are we to say they shouldn't? <laughs> like, <laughs> let them shoot their shot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to be imposing his human taboos on animals. Um, but yeah, I found that really fascinating, and yeah, it's just really cool. Mm. Well, we'll be continuing along a similar train of thought after the break. But before that, this is Sex with Me by Rihanna. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. That was Sex With Me by Rihanna, and today we're talking all about reproduction. Catriona, take it away. 
Well, I'm going to talk about when a female of a species don't need no man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they can reproduce all by themselves. Um, so both of you, Jared and Kai, have talked about cost, um, whether it was the cost of menstrual cycles or cost of um, you know looking for a mate mm-hmm. or at least selecting between yeah. sibling, not sibling. Um, <laughs> if you think about it, sex itself also has a very, very big cost on animal reproduction because first uh, – I love this. This is this is from Michael Carney, who's at the University of Melbourne. Um, if you think about it, half a creature's offspring, so the males are unable to reproduce alone. So uh, in his words, they are often seen as evolutionary wastage. Attacked. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Michael Carney. Um, <laughs> but... In addition to that, finding a mate also takes energy mm-hmm. and um, mating animals are often at greater risk of attack by predators. And so doing or by their mate in some cases. Yeah, well, yeah. <sighs> you know, the ones that are just like, oh, thank you. You're dead. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so doing away with males also removes these drawbacks. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> this is revenge for you talking about um, menstrual yeah, cycles. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's also International Women's Day this week. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a whole thing. Um so I'm talking about the concept of parthenogenesis. So that's that's when a female can reproduce by themselves. And uh, not this is not the first case, but certainly it comes up in zoos because that's where people like really closely monitor animals. And mm-hmm. so on August 24th, 2016, an Asian water dragon hatched from an egg at the Smithsonian National Zoo. And her keepers were absolutely shocked because <laughs> they were like, that mother has never been near a male dragon. <laughs> what? <laughs> and so through genetic testing, the zoo scientists discovered that that newly hatched female had been produced through parthenogenesis. Mm. And just to backtrack, parthenogenesis is a Greek word meaning virgin creation. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know if they like, you know, go back and call them all Mary, but um, <laughs> specifically it refers to asexual reproduction in females. Um, and it's, actually surprisingly common, just like inbreeding is surprisingly mm-hmm. common. Um, so it's found in a variety of organisms, including plants, as well as throughout the animal kingdom in insects, fish, reptiles, and even birds. Mm-hmm. So sexual reproduction, uh, which is the kind of reproduction that most of us are familiar with, involves a female and a male, each contributing half the genetic material in the form of eggs and sperm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that creates a unique offspring because you've got half from mom, half from dad. But females of some species produce eggs containing all the genetic material that you need for reproduction. And there are actually some species that need to reproduce this way, interestingly. Um, mm. So they're called obligate parthenogens, and they include some wasps, crustacean, and lizards. Um, but a large number of species experience spontaneous parthenogenesis, which, as I said, is best documented in animals kept in zoo settings, like mm-hmm. that Asian water dragon at the National Zoo. Um, there's also been a Komodo dragon, which I believe, Jared, you've heard about. <laughs> yes, I've definitely heard about that. Yes, it's very, very cool. Yeah, years, I think, um, they had it in captivity. No male at all, and then all of a sudden it gave birth, just out of yep. nowhere. Yep. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> um, also, a black tip, sh- black tip shark at the Virginia Aquarium, you know? And, and so just because people keep an eye on them and know whether or not the female has been around a man, that's, or a male, I should say, um, or not been around a male, mm. as the case may be, um, that's how we sort of document yeah. how, how this happens. And 
it could be a little bit skewed because certain settings can sort of trigger it a little bit more. So perhaps we're sort of triggering pathogenesis by keeping animals sort of sequestered Separated. in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but people do think it, it's quite common in nature as well. Um, so these spontaneous pathogens typically reproduce sexually, but, you know, they might have the occasional cycle that produces a ready-made egg that's just good to go in terms of development. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And interestingly, scientists have learned that this might be a heritable trait. So that means that females that suddenly experience pathogenesis might be more likely to have daughters that then do the same thing. Right. Yeah, so it could be that we're just like kick chain starting like this this thing in zoos where they're all just female, female, <laughs> female. Only, yeah. yeah, don't need no man. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, especially if an animal typically reproduces sexually, you'd, you'd think that the female eggs are only set up to give half of the amount of genetic material for their offspring. Mm. So how on earth do females fertilize their own eggs? <laughs> um so for this whole process to happen, a chain of events needs to successfully unfold. Firstly, the females must be able to create their egg cells without stimulation from sperm or from mating. Um, so, you know, they need to be able to do it all themselves. Um, <laughs> second, the eggs produced by those females need to begin to develop on their own, mm-hmm. forming a, a an early stage embryo. And once you've got that early stage embryo, it's, it's probably easier because you've already you know, got the hardest bit done. Yeah, you're yeah. most of the way there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, the eggs need to successfully hatch. So simple, three steps, right? Yep. <laughs> um, but each of these steps in the whole process can easily fail, especially step two. So because you need lots of genetic material, you need mm-hmm. more than just half. Um, it requires the chromosomes and, and the DNA that's inside the egg to double so that you get that full complement of genetic material for the offspring. Um, Alternatively, the egg can be force fertilized uh, by leftover cells from the egg production process, and that's known as polar bodies. But essentially, you know, you kind of got like, oh, leftover cell here, we'll put that together, and bam, you've got (laughs) genetic material. (laughs) Wow. So they're, they're not cloning themselves Right? These, this is like mixing their genes of themselves? Yeah. It depends on which process is, okay. is kickstarting um, the whole thing. But, yes, it could be a clone or it could be like a, you know, here's half from me and half from me, but a different half from me. <laughs> That's like the worst possible kind of inbreeding. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, hopefully it's like the good sides of like both of me, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the best of all this world. Or the worst. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... Whichever method kicks off the development of the embryo, um, ultimately that will determine the level of genetic similarity. Mm -hmm. So whether it's identical or, you know, oh, maybe the mum and offspring is a little bit different. Yeah. So although spontaneous pathogenesis appears to be rare, it does actually provide some benefits to females who can achieve it. And in some cases, it allows females to generate their own mating partners. And, um, you know, we talked about the whole idea of inbreeding and whether or not that works. <laughs> yeah, would this be classed as inbreeding? Yeah. Yeah, well, cloning uh, yourself. Cloning, <laughs> cloning yourself. But no, 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 cloning yourself to then get a mate to mate with. True. That's yeah. like, that's next level. That's pretty deep. <laughs> um, it only works for some species though. So a, a female that undergoes parthenogenesis can only produce offspring with the sex chromosomes she has at hand, which kind of makes right. sense, right? So you can only work with what material you've got. So for 
not that this is possible in humans, but humans have XX female, XY mm -hmm. male, and a lot of animals do. So if a female is XX, she's only ever going to produce XX female offspring yep. because she has no Y to give. Yeah. Um, but for some organisms, it's kind of not the XXXY, it's the ZW system. <laughs> and females are ZW. So females are the ones with the two different uh, chromosomes. Okay. Um, and so it can be the case in some birds and in snakes as well. So they can mix it up. They can mix it up. So all the living offspring produced are either going to be ZZ, so male. Some Gen Zs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's rarer for them to have females, but, um, you know, they, they can have males. So they can literally give birth to their new mate. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Conflicted about that. Yeah. <laughs> Very Game of thrones -y. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> So between 1997 and 1999, a checkered garter snake that was kept in um, at the Phoenix Zoo gave birth to two male offspring that ultimately survived to adulthood. So sometimes they don't they don't survive, but sometimes they do. So if a female, you know, a female would have had to give birth to these two males, um, if the mother reproduced with the son. Um, of course, that would constitute inbreeding. Mm. Um, and while inbreeding can result in a host of genetic problems, as you've discussed, Kai, like from an evolutionary perspective, as you said, it's better than no offspring <laughs> at all. <laughs> so it could even save a species, you know. In 2021, researchers from San Diego Zoo reported two fatherless male chicks raised in a program to save the Californian condor from extinction. So they were like, oh, could the species be restored by a single surviving female? We can we can get these fatherless chicks born yeah. and out there. Um, so in 1982, the species declined to a population of only 22. So that's wow. like less than the thousand people yeah. who went over to Quebec. <laughs> um, and so that sparked, you know, an ambitious captive breeding program. And, you know, as you pointed out, that creates a genetic bottleneck. And so mm. the researchers really tried to do a detailed study of, of the genetics of these birds to avoid too much inbreeding. And so they collected feathers, blood, eggshells, whatever, from, from nearly 1,000 birds over 30 years. And they established parentage, confirming that, okay, half the DNA is from um, a female and half is from a male, as you expect, but they found for two chicks. Um, they had DNA markers that all came from the same female parent. So there was no trace of markers wow. from the male that she'd been paired with. So wow, going down cool. to 22, two of them must mm. have not had a father. It must have been parthenogenesis that, wow. that um, resulted in their birth. So is it possible that an endangered bird like the Californian condor could be resuscitated, I guess, from a lone female survivor? Maybe... But not quite, actually. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it turns out that um, fatherless animals don't do too well. Um, right. It's, well, particularly in these animals, I, okay. should, I should say. So neither of the two fatherless condors produced offspring of their own and one died before reaching sexual maturity and the other was kind of weak and submissive. So mm. uh, pro poor prospect for fatherhood. But, but there is some good news. So the beautiful green grasshopper, Warumba virgo, is one of those rare parthenogenic species where it's actually worked out quite well yeah. for them. Um, so this is a grasshopper that's in Australia. So here's a little Aussie story for <laughs> you. <laughs> um, so for them, they only really reproduce by parthenogenesis. That's, that's yep. the only way that they do it. 
And you'd think, okay, they're like all inbred. <laughs> they're probably going to die of genetic causes, like genetic diseases. But the thing is, this particular species turned out to have a hybrid origin. So it was a cross between two different species ah, of mm. grasshoppers many thousands of years in the past. And that seems to have done it for them by crossing two different species. They've been okay yep. reproducing just by themselves or, you know, through parthenogenesis. Um, so perhaps parthenogenesis can be advantageous if the genetic diversity is boosted by, you know, kind of re repeat hybridization events between two parent species. You know, if you just cross different species together, <laughs> producing an <laughs> army of different clones. <laughs> Um, so combining the genomes of, of the two species might make the parthenogens like a little bit more vigorous and, and less like, oh, we're just going to die out before yep. we reach sexual maturity. So um, this this is based on Michael Carney's research, which is how I found his delightful <laughs> quote. Um, <laughs> and the conclusion from his research was that, okay, maybe the grasshoppers have, have become parthenogenic, but not not with a cost, which is yep. quite surprising. Yeah. Um, and really this particular grasshopper, um, W. Virgo, as its, you know, <laughs> its more simpler term is, um, it's successfully spread all the way from the west side of the country to the east, unlike its parent species. So the two parent uh. species of grasshoppers have not become widespread, whereas it has. It's done fine. Left like, the roost. Yeah, it, it gave up on sex 250,000 <laughs> years ago, <laughs> and it's doing just fine. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know. This isn't. This is going to happen. Not going to happen for us because uh, mammals, including human beings, <laughs> require certain genes to come from sperm. So, uh, you know, males, you are not redundant. Yeah, <laughs> 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 mammals are incapable for parthenogenesis. So, like, no surprises for us. But yeah, it's really incredible and fascinating um, how other animals can do it, and how, in some cases, it's actually not detrimental. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. Somehow, it works for some species. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of another a species uh, that's not technically, or it's a subset of parthenogenesis called mm. gynogenesis, which Ooh. is like just only women. It's basically mm. what it means. Mm -hmm. But they can't do without sex. Oh. So their species only has women. And the one I'm talking of is it's called the Amazon Molly. And Amazon is like the warrior women. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't <laughs> you say Amazon. I'm like, okay. Yeah. It doesn't actually come from the river Amazon, yeah. which is funny. It's like, anyway, um, <laughs> this particular fish, the species only has females and it still needs to mate or have sex with a closely related and compatible other fish species. Mm. And the reason for that is the like actual action of having sex stimulates the, the parthenogenesis. Right. So when they they have sex, they're like, okay, now I can reproduce, but they still actually have to do it to to get to, you know, to reproduce, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's similar in some species that they need to mate to ovulate. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like rabbits and cats are like that. That's why there's so many of them. <laughs> because <laughs> they mate and then they ovulate, which means they're basically going to get pregnant. So right. it's kind of like this species has maintained that need to mate for some process yeah. to happen, which is pretty incredible. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So that's all pretty cool. And that's all the time we've got for today on Radio Silence. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. Check out our past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And our last song is Independent Women by Destiny Child.